back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All with Bob Schaefer, episode 343 on the network. Before I bring Bob on and our special guest today, I just want to say thank you to two groups of people. First, our listeners and subscribers, 57,000 to date and climbing. We appreciate your support. We're listened to in 74 countries, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. Make sure at the end of this show, give Bob five stars, write some nice comments, because much like in Major League Baseball, we battle the analytics of the podcast world as well. So help us out in that regard. And because of your push, we're now a major part of iHeartRadio's powerful podcast network. So keep us rolling in that regard. Second thank you is to Blackout Coffee, the first ever sponsor we've taken on. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. Because of the partnership now for the first few months, if you type in David, all capital letters, D-A-V-I-D, with the number 20 after it, You'll receive 20% off for your first purchase. After your first purchase, you're going to get 15% in perpetuity. So what a great friendship to have. All the coffee you want. Be awake, not woke. Let's support Blackout Coffee. And with that, touch them all star, Bob Schaefer. Bob, welcome back to your show. Uh, Good to be back, Dave, and look forward to a good show today. You you always bring it today. You always bring it. So I'll let you introduce your guest today. i got a special guest. All right. We're fortunate and happy to have Joe Castiglione, the voice of the Red Sox, with us today. Uh, Joe grew up in Connecticut. Like a lot of smart people did. That's where I came from, too. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. I said, wait a minute. I'm not from Connecticut. Oh, well, you got a chance, still. But Joe, Joe started his major league career in Cleveland. He was there a couple of years and went to Milwaukee for a couple of years. Then joined the Red Sox in 1983. Forty years ago, calling more than 5,000 regular season games and 112 postseason games. More than anyone else in Red Sox history. He's enshrined in Red Sox Hall of Fame, the Ohio Broadcasters Hall of Fame, and the New England Italian-American Hall of Fame. He is presently on the ballot to be inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in, in Cooperstown, which is a tremendous honor. Joe's one of the most respected broadcasters in all of Major League Baseball. In 2022, he's honored, and they had a pregame ceremony for him for his 40 years with the Red Sox. And Roger Clemens flew up. And jumped out of dugout with a plaque to honor Joe with. So that tells you what kind of respect he had from the players. And for Roger Clemens to do that is just a great honor for Joe. But uh, he's written two books, uh, The Rights and Sights, and You Can Believe It. Or no, Can You Believe It, which is his signature saying on the road. So happy to have Joe with us. We've been friends for quite a few years. We hooked up when I was scouting and coaching with the Red Sox and and then uh, with the Red Sox, Miley, and so forth. But then we stayed in contact. He lives right down the street from me in Fort Myers here in the off season. So, Joe, happy to have you with us. Jay, thank you so much. It's a real thrill to be with you. I've certainly learned a lot of baseball from you over the years, about, especially about the fundamentals of a game and playing infield and, uh, of course, about the scouting and uh, about the personnel in the game today. And uh, you and I share many of the same opinions. Well, the game has definitely changed, no doubt about that. But uh... – it's still a great game. It's just uh, some of the modifications they made in the last several years 
when Manfred came in, it's time you, you don't recognize the game sometimes. And, uh, you know, you can't break up double play. You can't knock over the catcher. Uh, you got to have three batter minimum when you come out of bullpen. And then the analytics took over. And you got to, you know, you can't go through the third time through the lineup unless you're exceptional. But some of the things are we're old school. I know you agree with it, and Dave does too. But I don't know how much you can do about it. Just got to live with it, and hopefully it'll turn around a little bit. But I don't know how much it's going to turn around with the people running the game now. Well, everything is cyclical, I think, in the game. And, uh, you know, when uh, Bruce Bochy won the World Series, an old school manager, and uh, Dusty Baker goes uh, to the NLCS again. Uh, I think that when you see that happening, uh, we're going to go back to more uh, traditional baseball. And I think uh, the hiring of uh, Craig Council uh, by the Cubs uh, managers lost a lot of clout in the recent years. But Bochy certainly has clout. Dusty, who just retired, uh, had clout. In, and now to give uh, Craig Council a contract like that, what is it, uh, five years, $40 million with the Cubs. I mean, uh, we're going to see more power from the managers and uh, maybe they'll be a lot more independent in their decision-making like our, our Alex Corey is with the Red Sox. Well, I agree. Um, you know, like we talked about, we went to a, a golf outing the other day, Joe and I did, Tommy Gordon had a golf outing and we talked about that. And, uh, you know, in the old days, the manager was in charge. The only guys in charge now are the better managers, but the other managers seem to take a lot of insight from the people in the front office who never managed before, but they kind of tell them what to do in a lot of situations or how to set the lineup up and everything else. And, you know, the, the, the managers, some of these new managers are with the players instead of players being with the managers. So hopefully uh, they'll get more better managers back in there and give them a second chance or third chance sometimes. And, and, you know, let them take charge and, and play baseball the way baseball is supposed to be played instead of just swinging from your butt trying to home runs all the time or trying to throw 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's happening, and the council thing underscores that, uh, I think, uh, greatly. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure he didn't go to the Cubs to be told what to do by uh, analytics people, That even though, of course, you know, they are certainly use the analytics like everybody, pretty, pretty much everybody else does, but I think uh, – you know, they respect Greg enough or they wouldn't have given him a deal if they did. Well, everybody likes analytics. You know, they have a factor in the game and uh, some value and everything else. But, uh, you know, when like Burials, when he took Burials out of the game after 62 pitches and a fourth, maybe fifth inning, because orchestrated before the game, if the left-handers come up, they're going to take him out of the game. But he was dealing. And to me, you got to use your analytics, have a game plan, but same token, adjust the game plan as the game goes on. And, you know, you're watching it. You're feeling it as a manager, and you can adjust to it. But everybody, they didn't adjust to it, and they took him out of the game and then didn't work out after that. But uh, it just, you know, it's a human element game. You have to see what's going on, use your intelligence, your experience, and, and go from there. Well, classic example, 2018 World Series with Rich Hill, who's had two tours with the Red Sox, and uh, actually three tours with the Red Sox and 13 different teams. He was a very close friend of mine that, he was pitching for the Dodgers, had a one-hitter going to the seventh inning and allowed one base runner. And third time around the lineup was uh, coming on, and uh, they took him out of the game. And the Red Sox brought in Brian Radson. The Red Sox put up Mitch Moreland to pinch hit. He instantly hit a home run. <laughs> and the Red Sox won game four, which was pivotal. 
and went on to win the World Series in five games. That was a classic example of a pitcher being taken out by the analytics decisions at, so they didn't want him to face the third time around the lineup. So, uh, you know, I think examples like that stand out. Other times, of course, it does work. I mean, there are some numbers with a lot of pitchers to support that those decisions. But you can't have hard and fast rules like that. Joe, how, how is analytics, how has that adjusted your preparation for games? We talk a lot about player preparation here. I don't think our audience knows much about the type of preparation that goes into your into your part in the game. Um, you're, you're painting a picture for the audience. You're, you're helping them learn how to watch the game the right way. Has analytics changed that for you? And what is your, what is your pregame prep? It's changed it a little bit. I mean, we look at some of the numbers, uh, exit velocity and the matchups. Certainly, we've always looked at matchups. I mean, that goes back to Earl Weaver who kept the file cards between hitters and pitchers. And I did that myself for many, many years. Now it's right out there on the Internet. You don't have to keep it yourself. Uh, so, you know, we've always used those, but I try not to get too bogged down in numbers. It's still the traditional batting average, home runs, RBIs, because they tell a story right away that people understand. Uh, tough to do war because a lot of people don't understand the formula for it. Uh, exit velocity, I think, tells a story because it, hard hit balls. But we try not to get too deep into it because if you overwhelm listeners with numbers it's like going to work for them i mean baseball's an escape it's entertainment uh, sometimes we know on radio we're background sound and that uh, you know they don't listen real closely until uh, they hear our voices rise and uh, something's happening in the game but you really have to be very careful in using too many numbers sometimes they're a crunch they're a crutch i've always felt that anytime you use a number, it should tell a story. If it doesn't tell a story, it's meaningless. So just be that's careful on how you do it. That's a great point, Joe. I think people, this analytics battle, start banging on the numbers, and it's really not the numbers. Numbers have been around forever. It's when they make them opaque, when they make them absolute, and they really make them deadly where somebody could lose their job because these things, they're ever-changing like war. Um, I often say that analytics should be thought of as the English language, as you pointed out, where it's, it's a word story to start a conversation. So I like that. I like that analogy. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up to our audience. What would Roger Clemens say if he was approached about the third time around the lineup? No, he'd knock somebody down. <laughs> uh, Roger, uh, Roger wanted to finish games, and he did finish many of them. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't like it at all, nor would Pedro Martinez. I mean, I've been – I've been privileged. 22 of my first 24 years with the Red Sox, I had either Roger Clemens or Pedro Martinez pitching every fifth day. And uh, what a treat. Because, you know, the Red Sox have never been known as a pitching organization. Roger, they drafted and signed. Pedro, they got in the trade with Montreal. But uh, neither one uh, would have gone along very quietly with decisions like that. Yeah, I can imagine. Bob, what do you got? Well, we, we talked many times in the show about pitching and, you know, starting pitching and the uh, value of started starting pitcher going deep in the game. And we had Burt Blylevin on last week, or two weeks ago, whenever it was. And, you know, one year he had 40 starts, which was every fourth day, and he had 25 complete games. But the mentality in those days was I start the game, I'm going to finish the game. And um, nowadays you start the game, you might go five. But it was a shame 
in the playoffs, they had to use a bullpen. Both teams used eight different pitchers. And, uh, you know, they're two of the best teams in the game. And they can't get four or five starters to go five, six innings. And that's just the way to prepare the players now in the minor leagues. I mean, I watched a lot of minor league games this year, low A, which is, you know, probably the second, third year minor league or uh, professional playing. And 70 pitches, as most ever seen. I mean, how are you going to get better throwing 70 pitches? But that's the analytics, or that's where, you know, people get, get involved that really don't know how to train pitchers. Yeah, and, you know, Bob, it's a good point because they still get hurt. I mean, they still yeah, right. more than ever. And sometimes the theory is go as hard as you can as long as you can. And sometimes that's not the way to, that's not the way to pitch. That's throwing rather than uh, pitching. And we're very happy now, at least I am, because the Red Sox have hired a pitching guy as their chief baseball officer and, and Craig Breslow. Craig is a brilliant guy, Connecticut guy, Bob, of course, like you and me. He's from Trumbull. Yeah, yeah he's smart. Yale. Very, very bright. But uh, he was hired by the Cubs to be a pitching analyst, became assistant GM, and now he's coming to the Red Sox. And pitching is going to be the top priority. And this is something – Red Sox, uh, who are in need of starters especially, really need. So I'm very thrilled by that. And, uh, you know, Craig is a guy who's going to be bold. I think uh, he's going to get along with uh, other GMs. And uh, I think uh, Red Sox are in pretty good hands right now. Jim Cott spoke highly of him. We have Jim, uh, we have nine shows on the network, as our audience knows, and Jim's one of our other co-hosts on Cott's Corner. And he spoke highly of, of the hire. And uh, for people that don't know, Craig played for John Stuper at Yale, and John Stuper was a teammate of, of Cotts, I believe, with the Cardinals. Hardly right, 82 Cardinals, world champs. Uh, Stuper won game six of that World Series. I recall that because I was in Milwaukee at the time. <laughs> yep. And uh, th- 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 it'll be interesting. I'm glad the, the baseball world is better, even though I'm a New Yorker. The baseball world is better when Boston and New York are good. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Boston move back up to – the totem pole and that AL East, that strong AL East. Um, who, some, of, some of your partners in the booth, you know, we, we talk about the, the the managerial position and the coaches. You've got to be in symbiosis, the pitcher-catcher combo. Who are some of the partners you worked in your booth that, that you've uh, had relationships with over the year? Well, my first partner was the late Fred McLeod. Uh, he was 26 and I was 32. My first job with the Cleveland Indians on TV in 1979. And Fred was a very innovative guy who later went on a long career with the Detroit Pistons and Cleveland Cavaliers. We lost him a couple of years ago at too young an age. But uh, Fred was uh, a pioneer in terms of the age. I mean, we were the youngest broadcasters in the game that year. We only did 40 games because that was pre-cable. And you weren't going to preempt CBS primetime for a a sixth-place team. But after that, my next partner was Bob Feller. And you talk about an experience. I had heard the stories about Bob, uh, who can be, who could have been, you know, sort of gruff, uh, not exactly politically correct, but a wonderful guy. I mean, he played catch with my kids. Uh, he laughed at himself, talked about his record for walks all the time. And he knew our team because he was a spring training instructor uh, with the Cleveland Indians at the time. And he was a lot of fun. Ken Coleman brought me to Boston. Ken should be in the Hall of Fame. He's come close, I know, a couple of times for the Frick Award. Uh, Ken joined the Red Sox in 1966 and was the of the Impossible Dream Team in 67. Uh, left to do Cincinnati Reds, the Big Red Machine era, 
and then came back to Boston where he brought me in in 1983. I had Jerry Truppiano for 14 years who had done Houston games and uh, WHA hockey and, and the other big sports. We had a, a wonderful time together, including the 2004 World Championship. Uh, um, I had uh, Tim Neverett, who did Pirates and is now doing Dodger games. And uh, I have uh, Glenn Geffner and Dave O'Brien, uh, a guy who really had great chemistry with on the booth. I had nine years with Dave till he moved over to Red Sox TV on New England Sports Network. So we had a wonderful time. And my current partner is Will Fleming, whose brother Dave uh, started with the Giants, I think, at age 25 and has done like 18 years. And Will is in his, uh, just finished his fourth year with me, actually four and part of another. And uh, we have a great uh, relationship. Uh, he's a very respectful guy and a Stanford guy, which we like to tease him about. But uh, we, we, we have a good time together. And uh, I've been very blessed to have good partners. We've certainly gotten along with all of them. We had one year where when Tim Neverett left, I had 10 different partners because they didn't hire anyone full time. And then we'll emerge from that group to take over. So. It's been a long run with a lot of great people that have helped support me and uh, helped make me, I think, better. Yeah, one of my favorite minor league players when I ran in minor leagues is one of your co-hosts, I guess you can say, or whatever you call him now, but uh, Lou Maloney. Oh, yeah. yeah. Louis was a very smart player, and uh, he made it because he knew how to play. And uh, I remember uh, when he got to the big leagues, I first of all accused Nomar faking an injury so he could get the, get to the big leagues because Louis and Nomar were like brothers. Yes. Anyway, Louis worked his way up and became a utility guy in AAA, which was against Dan Duquette's better judgment. But I said, Dan, the guy can play shortstop as a part-time guy. Well, you know, Louis worked at it and didn't have a lot of raw ability, but he made himself a good player. He did stuff to help a team win. He could hit and run. He could bunt. He could hit the ball the right side. He could good base runner, not real fast, but good base runner and, He's a guy you just, as a coach, you're just happy for guys like that that get to the big leagues because they use their intelligence and the skills they do have to do what it takes to win games. And as a scout for many years, uh, people say, what are, you, what are you looking at? Well, you look at the tools. You know, there's five tools. But the tools got to develop in the skills. And, uh, you know, you can be fast, but you got to be a good base runner. So your skill is your base run, not just, you know, your speed. But Louie was uh, – so anyway, he gets to the big leagues, and I go around on all the minor league teams, and I say, you know, we just sent a guy to the big leagues. He doesn't, doesn't run too well. He's not a great fielder, but he has a good arm. He just not, doesn't have a quick bat, but he knows how to hit. He knows how you know, he knows the strike zone. He just does things to help you win. And I had to tell Louie later, I said, in case he heard from his buddies, that I said he wasn't that good. I had to tell Louie what I told everybody. But it said, you know, it just shows you what kind of person he was as well what kind of player he was to get – with his talents to the big leagues. And he was very effective, and he actually started a shortstop in the playoff games, right, Joe? Like when he, when he got in the year they got to the playoff games, he, did, and he yeah, started because no one was hurt. He gets huh? in the 23-7 win over Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> 99. So what so was, yeah, was some I, of your yeah, – Everything you mentioned, Bob, has helped make Lou an excellent analyst. Uh, he had a talk show on our flagship station – and then he moved over to the radio and TV side. So we had him for about 50 games this year uh, doing analysis with us, which was really so good. I mean, he saw so many things we didn't see and was more importantly able to communicate that to the audience. 
but he also did several games, I believe maybe 50 more on television. And uh, he really excelled there working with Dave O'Brien. Kevin Euclid was the other prime analyst, and uh, along with Will Middlebrooks. And uh, Lou has a very bright career. I think he could be a network uh, analyst. Uh, I mean, obviously he doesn't have the big name that some of the other guys do, but he can really explain the game. And really, he's got something to say after every pitch. And, you know, another thing he does very effectively, a lot of times the ex-players, when you get a, a bad game sometimes, will sort of check out, maybe lose a little interest. But Lou is there where the score is uh, – Two to one or nineteen to one. He's there analyzing, staying with a game, and always comes up with something interesting for the audience. Yeah. Well, we've talked many times in the show about the intelligence factor for baseball players, and uh, you know, Louis is an epitome of a guy that you know uses his brain, his baseball knowledge, his baseball sense to get where he was as a player, and now he says an analyst. I love listening to him, you and him together. I mean, it's two of the best broadcasters in the game. I can't say it about everybody because some guys aren't that good or as good as you guys for sure. But uh, I think a radio broadcaster and you know, analyst is very important because, you know, I grew up listening to games on radio. I think you did too, but you probably to a certain extent. And, yes, Mel uh, Allen. Yeah. yeah, it's still best to listen to a game on radio to get a real picture of the game. But you need guys like yourself that can paint that picture. You feel like you're watching a game. Well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, radio still, baseball still a radio game because uh, uh, more or less the lack of action. You know, you, you can have it as background sound and then get into it when something big happens in the game. And uh, baseball's an announcer's meeting. Ernie Hartwell used to tell me, and Ernie was a very modest guy, but he would say, nothing happens until I say it does. <laughs> and, uh, you know, TV is an analyst medium. And a director's medium. Uh, baseball's an announcer's medium. And, uh, you know, Ernie was right to a certain extent. So I think uh, it'll always be there, audio audio baseball, uh, especially with, you know, the length of the game, the fact that it's portable. You can certainly be driving. We have so many listeners in cars. Take it to the beach, uh, wherever you want to go. Uh, we go with you. You don't have to uh, focus completely on the game for three hours. And that's a big, I think a big factor when you talk about everyday baseball, that's the beauty of it. Of course, is playing every day. Well, Ernie Harwell is one of the best for me. I, I was, I tell you a story and I told him the story when he was in Detroit and I was just coming up as a coach. But uh, when I was a kid, I was a New York giant fan. Of course, Ernie did the games, you know, giant games in New York. I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I used to listen to the games, but my mother made me go to sleep at a certain time. But I put the radio under my pillow one time. Yeah. In those days, we didn't have portable radios. We had, like, plug-it-in radio. And all of a sudden, I woke up. My mother smelled smoke, and the pillow was kind of almost on fire. It was smoking. She said, what the hell are you doing? Because I told Ernie, I almost died listening to you do a game. And he laughed. <laughs> but I was, you know, but, again, I love listening to it. I mean, those days, that's the only thing you could see. We had a little TV, like everybody did, but. Yeah, you couldn't get too many games on TV unless maybe you're home or something like that. But but I love listening to Ernie, and I learned a whole lot from Ernie, and he had a great voice and just a great idea of the game like like you do. Well, thank you. You know, that that's a great story about uh, the uh, fire. But uh, Ernie did the 51 Giants, and he was on television. I believe it was the first coast-to-coast -to -coast TV uh, broadcast 
when Bobby Thompson hit the home run. Of course, Russ Hodges had the famous call on radio that a fan from Brooklyn taped, and that's how it was saved because they didn't tape games in those days. Uh, you know, Giants win the pennant, Giants win the pennant. Ernie said he did it on TV, and the TV was so new that he said that probably only Mrs. Harwell and a handful of others heard it. <laughs> Joe, the 86 season was real special for the Red Sox and, you know, many monumental events. But could you share with our audience just the what you were feeling, what you were going through or some of the the high points and two events? One is the Roger Clemens uh, 20 strikeouts and and the second, obviously, the playoffs, which when the the world became aware that the Red Sox were were legit, Dave Henderson's home run. I think Baylor hit the home run to put the Angels up and then Henderson had that – uh, that shot. Could, could you relive those two for us? You know, it was, it was a magical year. Uh, I came to the Red Sox in 83. They had their first losing season since 66. Yaz's last year. Uh, decent year in 84, but the Tigers were back. I mean, they were 35 and five and one going away, wire to wire. Uh, 85, they finished 500. 86, expectations were not high. Roger Clemens had arm surgery in 85. And uh, no one knew what to expect until April 29th. I'll never forget that night. It was 44 degrees and misty at Fenway Park. The Seattle Mariners were in town. Much of the media over at the, the Garden, because the Celtics were having a playoff game against Dominique Wilkins and the Atlanta Hawks. So many of the guys who, the columnists and the guys who covered baseball for the most part, but insisted on basketball, were there. Uh, Roger got stuck in a traffic jam on Star Road Drive, which was one of the many thoroughfares trying to get to uh, Fenway. And he thought he was going to be late for the game. And Bill Fisher, the pitching coach, had alerted uh, somebody else. He may have been Al Nipper to get ready just in case Roger didn't make it. He shows up. He actually got out of the the car. And I think his wife took over at the wheel, uh, Debbie, and Roger ran to Fenway, got there maybe – 25 minutes before the game started, and right away he knew something was happening. I said to Ken Coleman about the second inning, I said, you know, when Roger pitches and he's on his game, there are a lot of foul balls. I said they weren't even touching the ball. They weren't. They were just missing his fastball. And it was – he had a great curve at the – and devastating slider at the time, uh, but mostly fastballs. And then the strikeouts kept building and building, and he got a gift strikeout uh, – well, he actually earned it, but Norman Thomas hit a pop foul over by the first base dugout, and uh, Don Baylor went over and dropped the ball. And on the next pitch, Thomas struck out, so that was an extra strikeout that he may not have had. And Then in the ninth inning, he struck out his college teammate and good buddy uh, Spike Owen, and then the 20th strikeout, he got Phil Bradley looking at a fastball. I thought he was going to get 21, but Kem Phelps grounded a short to end the game. And afterwards, Roger was mobbed, of course. He came on our post-game show after greeting his wife, Debbie. It really culminated the great comeback from an arm surgery, which he thought had threatened his career the previous year. He went on to go 24-4, and tremendous command, so dominant. And uh, in the uh, playoffs that year, uh, he had a 3 nothing lead in one of the games at Anaheim, and they rallied and won that game and they hit batsman. And then uh, we got a victory in game 
seven. But first, of course, the pivotal game six. Red Sox trail much of the game. I remember uh, Tony Armas got hurt. Dave Henderson went in to play center field. Bobby Gritch hit a ball to deep left center, and Hendu went back to make the catch. It ticked off his glove, went over the wall for a two-run homer. And the Angels had the lead, three-run lead going to the ninth. Uh, Buckner singled, and then Don Baylor hit a long home run. And after a couple of outs, Rich Gedman came up. And left-hander Gary Lucas hit him with the first pitch. He hadn't hit a batter all year. Getty had been four for four with a home run in that game against the starter, Mike Witt, who was relieved by Lucas. And then they went to Donnie Moore. Hendu came up, and after following off several pitches, he hit a fork ball uh, over Brian Downing's head into the left field seats for the lead. But, you know, that wasn't uh, that didn't decide the game because the Angels scored in the bottom of the ninth. They loaded the bases and uh, got the tying run home and had only one out, winning run at third, and Desenze had a pop fly to shallow right that Evans caught. No one's going to run on Evans. And then Bobby Gritch with a 2-0 counted a soft liner to the pitcher, Steve Crawford, who made the catch. And then Hindu with a sack fly in the 11th to win the game. And then the Red Sox went on with Clemens dominating in game seven and rolled. I think they scored 10 runs and won the pennant. On to the World Series, of course. And the Mets were heavy favorites. People don't realize that. The Mets had won, I think, 108 games. I mean, they were a powerhouse led by Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry. Keith Hernandez, and so many others. And the Red Sox won the first two games of that series, including game first game one nothing on an error by Tim Tuffle uh, on a ground ball hit by uh, Rice. Oh, Gedman hit the ground ball, and Rice scored. Anyway, uh, game two was Clemens against Gooden, and they both got relieved early before the fifth inning, but the Red Sox rolled to that win. Then the Mets won the next two at Fenway. Red Sox win game five with Bruce Hurst spinning a beauty, as our Joe Morgan would say. Game six, of course, the pivotal game, and uh, went back and forth. And uh, Red Sox score in the tenth inning when Dave Henderson hit one off the Newsday sign. And if the leader stood up, he would have had a statue in Boston. <laughs> Marty Barrett hit a two-out uh, uh, double to score Boggs, and uh, the Red Sox had a two-run lead. And then in the bottom of the tenth inning. I, I had called the top of the 10th, including the Henderson home run, and I said to Ken Coleman, Ken, do you want me to stay here and do the bottom of the 10th or go down to the clubhouse and be ready for the post-game interviews and celebration? And Ken had been there 20 years, uh, said, whatever you want to do. He was very gracious. And I thought, well, two things. First, he deserves to call the last out of the first Red Sox World Championship since 1986. And uh, besides, I want to be down there and get soaked in champagne and be part of this party. So I was down. By the time I got down, there were two out and nobody on. Calvin Chiraldi pitching. And then I hear a little security uh, guard had a small transistor radio here. Base hit, base hit. Kevin Mitchell wasn't even dressed, had to put on his uniform, and he had one of the, the hits. And Ray Knight had a hit. And then I hear Bob Murphy, the Hall of Fame voice of the Mets, say, gets away, and here comes the tying run. The wild pitch or pass ball was called a wild pitch, but could have gone either way. And uh, that was with Bob Stanley pitching. And then, of course, uh, I started to run up to the booth at Shea Stadium, which was an archaic facility, terrible elevator service. So I was on a ramp when I heard the crowd. I didn't see it, 
till Sports Center at 2 a.m. in the morning when Mookie Wilson hit the ball that went by Buckner and and the Mets won the game. Uh, what a lot of people don't recall is the Red Sox got home runs from Gedman and Dwight Evans and had a 3 nothing lead in Game 7 with Bruce Hurst pitching. Well, okay, boy, he's supposed to pitch. The game got rained out on the Sunday night, Game 7, so they played Monday with an extra day rest. They went to Hurst, who actually was announced on the scoreboard, message board, as the MVP of the series before the, the game ended, which, of course, was premature. But uh, Red Sox were leading 3-1, to one, I recall, in the sixth inning. I'm doing the play-by-play. The Mets had the bases loaded, two out, and the 3-1 count to Keith Hernandez. And I said to myself, if he gets a hit, they win. If we get him out, the Red Sox win. And he lined a two-run single to left center. I just recall that with him this year. And he said, uh, first try to get a fastball in, and he lined a hit because he was such a great clutch player. And then, of course, the Mets exploded. Uh, Strawberry hit one off the uh, scoreboard, and they, they won game seven. So it, it was a heartbreak. To me, it was my fourth year with the Red Sox. And I thought, well, it's tough. You know, they, they didn't win it. Tough way to lose. But we'll be back in the World Series soon with this team. It took 18 years to get back there. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. That's why it's a good game. You got to get them out. You can't run the clock out. That's it. You got to get that 27th out. So, Joe, when Clemens had his 20 strikeout game, how many pitches did he throw? Do you know? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think it was close to over 130. Uh, I know it was considerable, and really, we didn't make, make any note of it. It was, And I did count pitches for a long time. I, I think I counted that night, but I don't remember what it was, and it really wasn't considered uh, significant. Certainly, there was no no question of taking him out. Actually, he was losing one nothing to the seventh inning because Gorman Thomas hit a home run. Mike Moore was pitching very well without the strikeouts, but in the bottom of the seventh, Dwight Evans hit a three-run homer, and that turned out to be the final score, three to one. So it was a close game the whole way. Yeah, well, there was someone. I get what the guy with the Cubs had. He had twenty strikeouts also. Yeah, he hurt Kerry his arm Wood. right after that. Kerry huh? Woodhead. Kerry Woodhead. Yeah. He was a youngster, right? Before he got yeah. hurt. And uh, of course, Roger. Ten years later, had a twenty strikeout game in Detroit. It was a September game. Red Sox were out of the race, and Roger had been injured part of that year. Um, had an under five hundred record, which was such a rarity. And he, he had a perfect lineup because they had a lot of strikeout guys. They were a powerful team, but a lot of strikeouts. Probably not many if you look at today's number of strikeouts, but he went on to strike out 20. Uh, Travis Fryman was the 20th victim, the fourth time he fanned with uh, Bill Hasselman catching. So I think there were maybe 10,000 people uh, in the uh, stands for that game at Tiger Stadium. And there were only five of us, I think, who saw both 20 strikeout games, including uh, a trainer and the batting practice pitcher. I was going to ask you that question because one was in 86, the other one was in 96, and one, one was in April, another one in September. And, I mean, you, you couldn't get further apart. So so you, the trainer, a batting yeah, practice trainer, coach. Yeah, trainer, and uh, the batting practice pitcher, Ace Adams, and, uh, uh, oh, our traveling secretary, Jack McCormick. 
1986, Jack was the Boston policeman in the Red Sox dugout. 1996, he was a traveling secretary, so he saw both 10 strike, 20 strikeout games. It's amazing. But you've certainly seen a lot, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of ups mainly, and hopefully it'll get back up in the next few years. But, uh, yeah, like I think Dave said earlier, the Red Sox, Yankees, you know, when they get back to the top, that's like everybody's waiting for that to happen. And this year's World Series was not very popular, but it was still two really good teams that got there. They weren't earned away there. They were both uh, wild card teams. And uh, it's amazing what can happen in the game. But, you know, like we won it with – with Washington, 2019, we're a wild card team, and in that series, I think it happened again this year that the visiting team won every game. Is that right, Dave? Did the visiting team win every game this year? Won a series? Geez, I think it was pretty close to it, if not all of them. Um, there there yeah, weren't many games won at home this year. Hey, you know, the Red Sox were a wild card team in 2004. The Yankees won the division handily, and then of course the greatest comeback of all time, down three games to none, and uh, they rally. Uh, to win that series and and move on to sweep the the Cardinals, who were a heavy heavy favorite in that series. Cardinals won over a hundred games. So, Joe, you've seen the you know five thousand games done, I guess, right? But I mean, this year it was magnified because you had extra team in the playoffs. But uh, the teams that came in first place, they drew a bye and uh, they got knocked out. All but uh, I guess uh, you know Houston, but. It just seemed like the five, six days off really affected our hitters. Do you agree with that? I do because, you know, baseball's a, a game of rhythm and repetition. Uh, the baseball clock is you play every day. And to have four or five days off really upsets that uh, type of rhythm, especially for hitters. I mean, it's good for the pitchers and it's good if you're trying to overcome injuries, but you can get a little stale. And as you know, Bob, this inner squad games just don't do it. It's not the same. Uh, no, it's not the same. Yeah. So I, but, I think it does make a difference. I mean, you had three 100 lost teams who were eliminated early, the Braves, Dodgers, and Orioles. Right. I don't know how you solve that, that problem, but it's good to have the extra team because you get more cities involved in, in baseball down the stretch. Uh, getting hot at the right time, of course, is always the biggest factor. And, you know, we talked about managers, Chev. I know you agree with me that uh, Tory Laville is one of the outstanding young managers in the game. We had him as a bench coach and an interim manager when John Farrell had an illness. And uh, he is a great communicator, and uh, that's a gr- it's become an outstanding organization. Yeah, I'll tell you guys a, a story. I scout a lot of players, of course, but uh, one day Rizzo calls me and said, I want you to go scout Tori Labulo. That's when uh, Farrell was, was sick, I guess, and he was interim manager. Right, 2015. Yeah, yeah. so I went, to, uh, I went to Fenway, and I'm sitting there watching. I got there real early. I watched him. He's out there talking to all the players in the outfield, you know, great communicator. And he just you could see he was involved with the players. And I talked to uh, some of my friends over there. He said, you know, it's too bad about uh, Farrell, but it looks like uh, that he's doing a really good job, Lulo. And they all said he's outstanding. The young kids love him. He communicates with them. The veteran guys respect him. And he just had as a feel to be a good manager. So, of course, I emailed Riz and said, Riz, uh, I'd hire this guy tomorrow if you have an opening. And I didn't know at the time he was thinking about getting rid of the present manager that we had. And he did. 
And then Labula was uh, the Red Sox did a great job keeping him. They they overpaid him probably to be the bench coach again. And then of course he went to Arizona and the rest is history. But here's a guy to learn how to manage. He had good minor league experience. He got some. He has a bench coach in the big leagues. He got his opportunity. And he took charge, and this year he was without doubt one of the best managers in the game. So it just goes to show you. So I was right, and I actually sent Riz a copy of my scouting report the other day. I said, Riz, I was right on one guy anyway. So <laughs> I didn't get back to me yet, but he might say, Yeah, you're right. You only had one guy right. <laughs> yeah, you know he's a, he's a great listener and learner. He told me a story when he was our bench coach. He went to UCLA, but as a teenager he was from i believe santa monica area he went to john wooden's basketball camp and uh they were running drills and he had to stop to tie his shoe and john wooden called him aside he said young man you have some ability but you better learn to double knot those shoes (laughs) so that you didn't interrupt the flow and ever since then he double knotted his shoes I think that was, one of, that was that was one of Wooden's standbys. There, he, he taught all his kids how to put their socks on and tie their shoes. Yeah, for him. and Tori listened. And he told me also when he was a rookie, he came up with the Tigers. Remember Sparky Anderson, who was sort of the master of hyperbole, had him in the Hall of Fame before he even played a game. He was a good player, but you know, not a Hall of Fame player. And uh, he said it was a veteran team, so the great Ernie Harwell had him over to his home in Farmington Hills for dinner. And, uh, you know, that's another thing. He, he was listening to Ernie, learning about the game and uh, and some of the other things that you wouldn't get as a player. And I think, yeah, that's he's a very bright guy, and I think he absorbed all that information, which is certainly helping him today. You, you got a chance to witness, uh, you know, he just retired uh, from the Guardians, Terry Francona. What, was, uh, what made him so settling with the Red Sox? He had a nice steady hand with them. Well, certainly Tito understands players so well. Uh, he was a good communicator with players. He did hold them accountable, you know, when things didn't go as well as they could have. Uh, he was very good with the media. He was always very modest, almost, uh, you know, always self, almost self-deprecating at times. Uh, laughing at himself, I think, is a better way to put it. And uh, he, he, but you know, he was in charge. Uh, great storyteller and. Uh, I think a guy that uh, understood people. Uh, Tito was born to live in a clubhouse. I mean, he was in a clubhouse as a kid uh, with his dad. His dad played for seven or eight teams, and I think Tito was with nine organizations. So they got around, and he would be in the clubhouse with his dad. And there was a certain manager I won't name who didn't want kids in the clubhouse, and he never forgave that guy. And he always allowed players' kids in the clubhouse when he managed the, the Red Sox or on the field the shag flies because, you know, you, players were away from their kids for so many days out of the year, and he thought it was good family time, and if uh, a youngster could take advantage of it, uh, he was all for it. But uh, wonderful to his coaches. Uh, we've heard stories of his generosity and uh, his knowledge of the game and I think how players react uh, under pressure. And he would have been a great player. I mean, he was the number one pick of the Montreal Expos, and he hit high 300s as far as tri- AAA until he hurt his knee on a warning track. And, of course, he's had so many surgeries since then, knee replacements, shoulder replacements, and many other issues. And uh, we certainly hope he can enjoy good health in his retirement because he's had to struggle with a lot of uh, health issues over the last several years. 
I've got a question, but actually for both you and Bob, um, you guys have stood the test of time in baseball and, and in my mind, two treasures in the game. How have you been able to do this? Do you, do you have a routine outside of preparation for your job to keep you healthy, to keep you sharp, uh, to, to allow you to play in a Ripken-esque way? What, 41 years with the Red Sox, is that right? Or am I, am yes, I cheating a couple 41 years? 41 Red Sox and 44 altogether. And I've got a contract for this coming season to do somewhere between 81 and 90 games. Um, but I think you know the preparation has to be there all the time. But uh, you have to have the enthusiasm. You have to love the game. And uh, I think the rules that have shortened the game are really important. Uh, too much non-action. Too many strikeouts still. And hopefully they'll find a way to remedy that. But I think you have to have the enthusiasm for the game. You have to like players. I mean, I've always liked and respected players uh, because I think more so than any other sport, players are individuals. I mean, you have all types of personalities, all types of nationalities. And I think that is really uh, something that keeps the interest flowing, the human interest stories of players. Uh, And I, I always grew up listening I was a Yankee fan, which I don't like to admit too much, but uh, we all learn from our mistakes, as I like to say. But uh, I listened to the great Mel Allen. He was always on, never bored. Uh, Certainly you have some games that are not very interesting over the course of the year, but then you have other games that say, this is why I do it. Uh, I really love it. And uh, just to be around the personalities and the friendships you form, like Bob Schaefer. I mean, we've been close for many, many years, uh, even before he joined the Red Sox with our Connecticut connection. And, of course, that grew when he was with the Red Sox and has flourished since then. Is You know, we talk a lot, whether I'm in Boston and he's in Florida or he's on the road. and uh, Those are the kind of things that I, I think keep you interested, the personalities, more than anything in the game. Right. I think my thing is uh, I was very fortunate to work for some great people. When I coached, you know, John Walton hired me. He was great. Tony Pena took over. The next segment I had there, and he was awesome. And uh, and then I had Joe Torre. So, I mean, I had great managers that I coached under, which made it really easy. I had when I scouted, John Sherholz was tremendous as a general manager. Mike Grizzle was tremendous. So I was fortunate to work for some great people. So it was easy to keep your enthusiasm. And, of course, I love the game, and I've done a lot of things in the game. So I know a lot of different angles part of the game, you know, from coaching to running my leagues to scouting and so forth. And, I think coaching made me a better scout and scouting made me a better coach. When I get fired as a coach, I scouted and all of a sudden I got a job back coaching in the big leagues and so forth. And it all started in high school, went to the Cape Cod League, and then I managed in my leagues for five I mean, for about seven, eight years. And so I learned from the bottom up, and I think that made me a better person because I knew what the people under me were doing. I respected that. I respect how tough, how tough it was to get to the big leagues, get where I wanted to be. But when I got there, I appreciated it. Now, nowadays, some guys get there real quick, and you think they get there too soon, and they fail. They don't have the background to adjust to the situations and everything. And uh, it's just uh, – but it's been a great game. It's hard for me to understand some of these analytics and uh, how to evaluate – how you're evaluating players now. And uh, we talked about this the other day, how they eliminated some minor league teams. And my thing about that as a player development guy is that when you eliminate a team, now a young kid has to go from rookie league to A ball, and that's a big jump. Instead of going to the half-year A ball, we can, uh, you know, make it one step at a time. Because, yeah, young players, when they sign, 
the Latin players when they signed, they didn't go to college, so they weren't didn't have any success other than high school. And uh, all they know is they could play in high school. Where you college kid, 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, he had a lot of success in college. So he had his own confidence, self-confidence at that age, which a lot easier for him to handle some uh, you know, some bad situations or get in a slump and so forth because they know they can bounce out of it. So there's a lot of psychological part of being a big league player and the way you get there. And I think that uh, eliminating that one team, you supply it, uh, you mean you diminish the supply and demand gets greater, and some guys get to a level that they're not ready for, and they fail, they almost have to start all over again. So I just wish Major League Baseball would get together. And, yeah, I mean, you're spending more money in the long run by not having that one team. And I think they should almost have more than one team. And, again, with the pitching, I mean, the pitching is like it takes a while to develop your arm strength, your secondary pitches, and it should be a progression all the way instead of forcing guys. And now the worst thing about pitching is they put the best arms in a bullpen because they throw harder. And all they are is they're throwers. They're not pitchers. They never learn how to change speeds. They never learn how to handle it, you know, control the off-speed stuff and, you know, control the fastball. I mean, located fastball is still the best in the game, but they, they try to throw as hard as they can, and it doesn't work that way all the time. That's a great point. And the other thing, uh, Bob, with eliminating some of those uh, low minor league teams, that's how young fans are developed. It's a very affordable game for a family, for a dad and mom to take their little kids to the game, and that's where they learn baseball and uh, and fall in love with the game. And in many smaller towns now, you don't have that, which is sad. You're right. It develops fans, develops coaches, uh, front office people, even even umpires. I mean, that one level being subtracted is really bad for the game. Yeah, Joe, do you see that in your profession at all, where where guys are rushed, like Bob's talking about, to the bigs? Um, are, are they doing that? Is that prevalent in all jobs around baseball right now? or, or in, are, uh... in broadcasting, uh, well, it happens with ex-players. You know, sometimes they come off the field, you want to take advantage of uh, the name. But I think they're quickly weeded out. The good ones stay and the bad ones don't last too long because it's an everyday game. You're exposed if you don't know it. Uh, I mean, I've done football and basketball where the action can carry it. Baseball can't carry the action. Uh, I think in a three-hour game, the ball might be in play eight or nine minutes. So it's what you do between those pitches that really is critical. You have to describe the play as it happens. But the other thing is, is certainly critical, how you feel. Between- What's the dance like between those plays? There's got to be a – obviously, you got to – be with a partner for a while, but what are some of the the unwritten rules or even the the rules behind the scenes to help that that uh, flow happen? Well, I think it, it's sort of by osmosis. I mean, you know the game, and something will trigger a thought to tell a story, uh, something you've done in your preparation. To me, the greatest time to repair was during, during batting practice uh, or in the clubhouse where you just listen. You've got three hours to talk. You just listen and try to pick up anecdotes, not breaking news stories, you know, necessarily about trades or anything like that, but just human interest stories about the players where you can try to personalize them. And things happen when you're experienced over the course of a game that triggers a thought about something that might have happened a year ago or 10 years ago, because baseball is like a pyramid. What happens today is built on what happened yesterday and the year before and the decade before and, uh, you know, 100 years before even. 
So I think that uh, you have all that background and something just triggers a thought and you go from there. But I think what you have to stay prepared and what the really good ex-players do is they realize that there's a turnover in the game every year, somewhere between you know, 25 and 33% of the players turn over each season and you have to stay current. Uh, if you played and you've been retired four years as a player, uh, probably fewer than half the guys you played with are still in the leagues. So you have to really work at it and stay prepared. And, you know, the best analysts do that. I don't think there's ever been a better analyst than Jim Cobb. I mean, to me, he was a standard bearer. And, and John Smoltz is right up there with him among the national guys. We've been very blessed in Boston to have some great analysts uh, with Jerry Remy, Dennis Eckersley, and uh, now with Lou Merloni and Kevin Euclid and Will Middlebrooks. I mean, uh, these guys really work at it and stay current, and that's what you have to do. Yeah. Well, do you have now, you, Bob? You said you golfed with Joe the other day, and um, I, he, he, he carried me. He carried you. Oh, do you have we, we played, I don't know if you can call it golf or not, but we played and we had fun. But after 16 or 14 holes, he said, Joe, I have enough. He said, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I feel the same way because our partners didn't show up. I don't, had, I don't know how they knew we weren't that good, but they didn't show up. So it was a two-man scramble, and everybody was playing a four-man scramble. So we hit two balls every time. And after a while, I was worn out, and so was Joe. We said, we're not going to win. We were like, I think, two over. I think the winning team was about 1,700. So we lost by a little bit, but. Uh, it was fun. It was great to see some of the guys up there. Tommy had a great group of people, and I'm going to get him on the show soon. And uh, just a great guy I've known since he was in, you know, first time with the uh, Royals. It was a lot of fun to see a lot of the guys that, you know, I covered over the years. And that's always a great thing when guys come back, Red Sox, Red, ex-Red Sox players come back to Fenway. Uh, in many cases, you know, I'm one of the few people that are still there, so. We, we like to have them on in the booth and talk about the, their days as a player, what they're doing now. And uh, most of them really enjoy that. So uh, I think it, it, it's so good. And the Red Sox have a great alumni system. Uh, our Pam Ken does a wonderful job of keeping in touch with these ex-players. Fantasy Camp has been a great way uh, to stay in touch. Uh, we have two big camps and also a women's camp down here at Fort Myers and I worked those, and the ex-players come back, the likes of uh, Flash Gordon that we see every year, Tommy Gordon, and uh, so many others, Brian Dahlbach, Trot, Nixon, Bob Stanley. And these guys love it, not only because, you know, they, they get to tell stories to the campers who pay like $5,000 to do this for a week, but they get to relate with their ex-teammates and, you know, tell a lot of stories and have a lot of fun. We, we have a former Red Sox that is a co-host on our show, Jeff Fry. He Jeff does Fry. A- I remember uh, uh, the Red Sox put up Coke bottles in left field one year. Remember that, Bob? Yeah. And the front office said uh, those Coke bottles paid Jeff Fry's salary. <laughs> he was a good little player. Unfortunately, he blew out his knees a couple of times. But Yeah. Yeah, he was really great. But, you know, he, I've heard him before. He, he, he tells how it is. I mean, he knows. I mean, you know, the sad part of baseball is that uh, with when Manfred took over, you wanted the young people to get involved in the game. And all of a sudden, you wanted technology to take over. And the young people, I don't think they're getting involved, but the old people are like, they had enough. A lot of people my age or even younger say, you know, I don't want to watch this anymore because they've taken the skill, a lot of skill out of the game. You can't double, take up a double play. Uh, certain things you can't do anymore. you got to have three 
three hitter minimum as relief pitchers and everything. So it takes some of the, you know, strategy away from the uh, coaches and everything and managers. But I mean, it's still a great game. It's a great fraternity. It's got great history. I mean, Joe's went back and Joe has a great memory. I don't know if he remembers all that stuff, but he does. And you got to have a great memory to be in a broadcast for sure. I couldn't remember what happened in the second inning when it's the fifth inning, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's tremendous. And, uh, but it's a great fraternity. And, uh, yeah, I was fortunate. Like I said I worked for a lot of good people, but I had a lot of players play for me that were really good players and made me smarter. But, you know, a lot of guys still call me. And it's just like we still stay in touch. And, uh, you know, one guy called me like two weeks ago. He said, he's one calls, make sure you're still alive. I said, I'm still alive with that. But it's just, you know, all the memories you have. It's about the people you met and the memories you have. You, you remember some games that were big and everything. You remember times you won championships. But it's just the people that you coached and managed and – uh a lot of them are doing really well. The guys I, I coached and managed, and uh, but staying in touch is big. And like I said, the thing you miss when you get out of baseball is the camaraderie and sitting in a dugout. I mean, sitting in, yeah, dugout or, or the clubhouse and just talking and you know, kind of throwing the ball around and you know, breaking some stones and everything. But that's what it's all about. And uh, you know, the memories are what it's all about. And I still have a lot of good memories, like Joe does and you do, Dave. You know, you you, were, you did it, you played, you coached, and that's what makes the games what they are. Hey, one thing I really miss is this, talking to the scouts from opposing teams. We used to spend the time in the media dining room before the game, sitting with the scouts, exchanging stories, a lot of laughs, but a lot of stories that helped you. I mean, they weren't uh, news-breaking stories, but they were personal interest stories that you could relate to. And these guys, uh, we always felt for them because they had no home games. Uh, like Bob, you know, they'd be on the road scouting, uh, wonderful guys like the late Deacon Jones, uh, Tommy Giordano, and uh, Hank Allen's a good friend. There's so many others, guys, uh, the late Dave Yoakum, and of course, Schaefer was a guy we'd see in several cities. And just talking baseball with these guys and learning. You're always learning in this game. I think that's that's the biggest thing that, that keeps you going. You're learning something new all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's one reason I retired because uh, a lot of my buddies got fired and not renewed because they're older. And they brought young kids in, which is not nothing wrong with that. But there's no mentors anymore. I, I learned from Bill Joyce and those kind of guys, and and then a lot of guys passed away, of course. So it's just not the same because we used to, you know, go before the games and talk after the game. We get together, maybe have a cocktail or two, and, and talk and learn from each other. But we always talk baseball, and that's the thing I miss now. But uh, I'm getting up there in age and I get a little tired of traveling. So yeah. it made an easy decision for me, but I've had a great career and I've had great people I, I worked for. So it's worked out well. Yeah. So I, does that I, stuff not happen anymore with the scouts? Or is it not, are they not accessible? Or are they not around? How, uh, no, because uh, most teams have dropped major league scouts. They do it by video. So yeah, a lot of teams don't have scouts. Yeah. We don't ones. see them where they have the amateur scouts who don't go to major league games very often, maybe late in the season if they're scouting for playoffs, but, Really, we see very, very few major league scouts during the course of the season because it's done by video. Well, that's a shame. I'm sure that was uh, those conversations, as you said, gave you some nuances as you're calling the game for the audience, some insight that nobody could get except for those scouts that are on the ground. Uh, speaking of that, I mean, you're, you're, you're there. We didn't get a chance to see the Red Sox deep into the season this year. We got a chance to appreciate, you know, Arizona and and the teams that that went went further in the playoffs, but share share some of the the young talent that you're seeing that the Red Sox have coming up that we may not, we may not know about or know well. 
if they can get some pitching, uh, Dave, I, I think uh, they're not that far away from being a contender once again. Uh, they've got a good core of young players. Uh, Rafi Devers had a big contract, struggled a little defensively this year. Didn't have his greatest year, but still had over 30 home runs and knocked in 100. Uh, I look for him to continue to improve. He's only 26, loves the game, plays it with a smile. And uh, he has the certainly the ability, I think, the tools to be uh, a better defensive third baseman. Tristan Casas is going to be a bona fide big league power hitter. I think he's going to be a 40 home run guy. And he'll hit close to 300. He knows the strike zone. Uh, he was a little too passive, I think, taking too many pitches early earlier in the year, but then became more aggressive at a great second half before he got in in the last month. Uh, Jaron Duran blossomed this year, a guy with world-class world speed. And uh, he's improved as an outfielder and as a hitter. And uh, I think that there's, there's a core there that, that could be very, very good if they can add couple of starting pitchers. I think they'll be uh, in very good shape. We've got an outstanding guy who can, can be a one or two starter, I think, in Brian Bayo. Uh, Pedro Martinez has worked with him in the Dominican Republic. He's a guy that uh, has a great pitch mix and has the good temperament, I think, uh, to be a good pitcher, very bright young man. Uh, it, the additions that they make will be critical. And I think that uh, they can be right back there as early as 2024 with a couple of additions. And that's why another reason I'm excited about Craig Breslow, because of the emphasis that I think we'll see on pitching. That'll be great. Now, congratulations, obviously, on the uh, nomination and hopefully the induction into the Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. When will will we find out? December 6th, we find out. uh, you get a phone call if about an hour before the announcement and the phone doesn't ring, you didn't get it. <laughs> and they never tell you the vote. But well, Joe, good luck. Uh, to me, you're a Hall of Famer as a person, also as a broadcast for sure. And I appreciate your time and enjoy talking to you all the time. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, the chance to talk baseball in November, we'll always yeah. be welcome. Right. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, we'd love to have you, especially uh, – and, and I can't imagine that call is not going to happen on 12-6. If it doesn't happen, you let me know. I'll make a call to somebody because uh, you're a treasure in the game, what you've done, not just for your profession, but for, uh, you know, Bob talked about as, as young kids growing up, we listened to the radio to get interested in the game. And, and to paint a picture and show people how to watch baseball is as big a gift as throwing a baseball. So we appreciate what you've done for the game. Well, thank you, Dave. I've been blessed and I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do this so long you have to credit your family my wife jan especially who spent you know many uh, a night at home alone and uh raising kids being mom and dad so uh there's just so many blessings that, that we have to be thankful yeah i was going to ask you that too i said we all we all as former coaches players broadcasters we all have people that sacrifice for us to, to help us do what we love and i'm glad you hit that point before i even had to ask so um that'll that'll earn points definitely at home I would imagine. We need but, <laughs> Bob, any last things you want to leave the audience with today? Great. No, I think we're good. I think I appreciate, Joe, your time and effort. and uh, Very interesting. And like I said, good luck in a Hall of Fame election. I'm, we're positive. Hopefully you're going to get in where you belong. So thanks again and uh, all your time and efforts and uh, being a friend. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I love those two-hour rides with you because it's never, 
never any dead air talking baseball or to and fro. Right. <laughs> I have to go to a meeting. <laughs> well, with, uh, with that, Real Voices of the Game, we just want to thank our 57,000 subscribers. We appreciate your support. Five stars, write some great comments because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in baseball. Make sure you tech, check out Blackout Coffee, our newest friend out there. It's our very first sponsor that we took in. Be awake, not woke is their slogan. 20% off at checkout if you use David, all capital, and the number 20. This is episode 343 in Real Voices of the Game. Touch them all with Bob Schaefer. Bob, another great episode. We appreciate you, buddy. Well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate all your insight also. Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. Oh, it is living in the new world.